It just went beyond words to describe how astonished they were, yet they weren't astonished enough to obey. So something more than just amazement is required in order to be a disciple. You need to be more than just amazed at God's power or His love or His compassion or His forgiveness. God needs to do a whole lot more than just amaze you for you to be a disciple. Because the mark of a disciple is not amazement. The mark of a disciple is obedience. Now let's ask the question, why did Jesus perform the miracle so strangely? Why did he do such odd things as he's performing this miracle? So now verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. So odd sequence of events, but the first thing he does is he takes him from the, aside from the crowd privately. He takes him aside uh, from the crowd privately and then he, he does the, he goes about this, this putting the fingers and spitting and, and all this sorts of thing. Now, it's interesting to us that we might say, well, why is Jesus doing this? Is, does Jesus need to revert to these sort of spells and magic, witchcraft sort of thing? Put your fingers, you speak this special word, ephaphathra. Is, is that what Jesus is doing? Well, this comes immediately on the heels of the story of Jesus casting out the demon from the girl's daughter, and the girl wasn't even there. So clearly, Mark is not saying, oh, this is what Jesus had to do. He had to sort of do these steps, these sort of physical things in order to do this. Clearly, that's not his point, because Jesus just cast out the demon in the prior story, and the girl wasn't even present. So there's something else. There's another thing going on. So the first thing he does, he takes him aside from the crowd privately. So think back now to how we began, just really thinking about as best we could, I guess, what it might be like to be a person without hearing. We've talked about the crowds that are following Jesus. We've talked about the size of these crowds and the immensity of the crowd. And we all know what crowds are like. Does anybody like crowds? I cannot stand crowds. And to be in a crowd is just so, it can be disquieting and uneasy. And what is it about the crowd that is most disquieting? Is it the way they look? Is it the way they smell? It's the noise, isn't it? Isn't it the noise? When you can be in a crowd and you can hear six conversations around you, isn't that the most unsettling part about being in a, in a really thick crowd? Now imagine one without hearing. Imagine one in a silent world. Perhaps he didn't live here. Perhaps he has been brought here from a long distance. Who brought him? We're not told. Maybe the man formerly known as Legion. Maybe he brought him. I don't know. But perhaps he's been brought here. Perhaps he's in a, an unfamiliar part of the world surrounded by unfamiliar people, and he lives in a world of silence. Do you see the compassion of Jesus and the empathy of Jesus? Jesus is not going to make a spectacle of this man. He's not going to do what he's going to do in front of this crowd as this person is, is probably already beside himself with anxiety and fear. 
Instead, instead, Jesus is going to lovingly and carefully take him aside in private. He is not anything like, you know, the, the fake TV false healer, faith healer people. They make a spectacle out of everything that they su- supposedly do. And there's the whole hitting people with the jacket. You make people come up on the, on the stage and you smack them with the jacket and all this kind of thing. And what's really going on there, what, what, what's, uh, what we know is really going on there is really just pressure. If you're put up on stage and there's hundreds, hundreds of people looking at you, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do what's expected of you. And that's what's going on. But it's the whole spectacle thing. Here, everybody watch this. Everybody look at this. It's not Jesus' way. Jesus is not here to make a spectacle of the man. He's going to carefully and lovingly take the man aside in private, taking him aside privately. He put his fingers into his ears and then he spits. So he puts his fingers in his ears. What's that all about? Well, Jesus can't talk to him. Can you imagine what the man is feeling right now? Can you imagine the fear and anxiety? We don't even know if the people that brought him here were able to communicate to him why they're bringing him. Maybe he's just been brought here and he doesn't even know what this man Jesus is about. He certainly never heard Jesus teach. Jesus's heart language, Jesus's native language is Aramaic. We assume that this man is not a Jew. So he probably speaks perhaps Greek as his first language, maybe Persian, maybe uh, some other language of the day, Latin or something. And so for Jesus to even speak to him and he read Jesus's lips, we're told by those who are uh, familiar with lip reading that people can, you can develop, deaf people can develop the ability to read lips, but only in your native language. You, You cannot develop the ability to read lips in a foreign language. That that would be something that would be extraordinarily difficult. So Jesus isn't able to say to him, even slowly and articulating carefully, Jesus is not able to say to him, it's okay, here's what I'm going to do. So what does Jesus do? Jesus touches his areas of need. He touches his ears as if to say, it's okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to open these. I'm going to open these ears. And then he spits. We don't know if that's on the ground or on his feet. We don't know what that is. By the way, one of three times, one of three times that Jesus is, that Jesus uses his spittle to perform a miracle. The next one is coming in chapter 8 with the blind man. And then another one happens in John 9 with the man born blind. All three times that Jesus does that is for the same purpose. is to communicate to the person what he's about to do. So then Jesus touches the tongue as if to say, I'm also going to loose this. I'm also going to open this. I'm going to unchain this. It's as if Jesus is wanting to just put him at ease to say, it's okay. Here's why you've been brought here. This is what I'm going to do. Fingers in the ear. I'm going to open these. Looking up to heaven. Jesus is so gentle with the man. Like we read in Isaiah, Smoldering wick he will not extinguish. A bruised reed he will not break. And looking up into heaven. So now he looks into heaven. Do you know how we communicate through our eyes? You know how you communicate? We, we can say things to people with our eyes. So he says to the man with his eyes, this is who is going to do this. God in heaven 
the true and living God, this is the one I look to. God will do this. This is not some magic power. This is not some magic phrase. God will be doing this. And looking up into heaven, he sighed. Now, we communicate through our sighs. And our communication through our sighs is not just audible, right? When, when we sigh, when there's this deep sigh, it's not just an audible thing. It's also a visual thing. So when you sigh, I mean, that's something you see as well. And if you, don't, if you don't get that, then just look to any teenager and you'll see what that is all about. But there's this sigh. And so the man can see. What does he see as Jesus sighs? I think what he sees is Jesus is communicating to him something that he often communicates in those times in which we see Jesus overcome with emotion. The tomb of Lazarus, the garden of Gethsemane, or uh, the instance in which they come and they, they are pressing Jesus for a sign and he sighs. What we often see Jesus doing is, is he has these deep sighs it's as though the weight of the consequence of sin is heavy upon him. It's as though you can just see the weight that he bears, that this is what sin has done to this man. This is what sin has done to this world. Sin has made this world what it's not supposed to be. Sin has taken from this man the gift of hearing. It's taken from this other man this, the gift of sight. It has taken from this other person their health. And Jesus just sighs to say, what a burden, what a distressing thing that, to see the grief that sin has brought upon us. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, verse 34, and looking up into heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ifafatha, that is, be opened. So there are a handful of words in our New Testament that are left in the Aramaic. Uh, Talitha kumai, we've looked at that one. Or um, uh, with the words that Jesus says from the cross, um, Eloi, Eloi, Lemesabachthani. A handful of times that the, the Aramaic is left. This is one of those times. Ifafatha. What a what an odd word. What an odd word. Three con three consonants that you have to breathe to speak them. Afafata. So the word, Mark tells us what the word means. Be opened. And he's going to open the ears. He's going to open the mouth. And what Jesus is really doing here, he, he is really undoing the curse of Babel. You ever think about the curse of Babel? You ever think about what happened at the Tower of Babel? It's one of those stories that's a favorite Sunday school story. You're building the tower. They're going to build a tower to heaven. And God comes and confuses the language, right? It's one of the most significant stories in all of the Bible. Because what the Tower of Babel is, is the beginning of the kingdom of evil. That's where the kingdom of evil begins. All through Scripture, the kingdom of evil is called, somebody tell me, Babylon. That's what it's called. Until the end of Revelation, when we hear Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. And so the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of evil started at Babel because Babel was the very first time in Scripture 
that man organized to rebel against God. Man has rebelled against God since the fall, but they've never organized. And so to organize together at Babel was the very first time that man came together to say, we will rebel against God. And so hence, that's the beginning of the kingdom of evil. So what does God do in response to their organized rebellion? He confuses their language. And so the confusion of language is the curse of the kingdom of evil upon man. Now, the scriptures tell us that one day that will be undone. But the scriptures also tell us that God is doing that in steps. Because the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, was a foreshadowing of the day that that will be ultimately undone. Because in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The languages that are confused, the speaking that's confused, and the hearing that's confused... There's the miracle of speaking and hearing where those in other languages hear in their own language. And so it's a partial overcoming. So the birth of the church, the initiation of the church is in some way a partial overcoming of the curse of the kingdom of evil. The curse of the kingdom of evil is the confusion of languages. The church is born and at the birth of the church, there's the miracle of speaking and hearing in your own language. And all that points us to the day when we look before the throne and we see all nations, tribes, and tongues before the Lamb, worshiping the Lamb. And so the language confusion is then forever and eternally overcome. But that is yet to come. Here what Jesus is doing is just a little bit of a foreshadowing of the foreshadowing, a little bit of a foreshadowing of the birth of the church. When Jesus overcomes, He opens the ears the mouth. You see? Because all of that was symbolically, metaphorically, a result of the curse of the kingdom of evil. So verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Mark uses the word orthos right there, which means right or correct, like orthodontist, one who makes your teeth right or correct, or orthodoxy, which means correct doctrine. So Correct speech, right speech. So notice the ears are open, the the mouth is open, the tongue is open, and immediately the speech is right. The speech is correct. There's no period of therapy. Jesus never engaged in therapy. Jesus was not a therapist. His healings were all immediate. Immediately they could see. Immediately they could not only walk, but leap and jump and dance. Immediately they were cleansed of leprosy. Immediately Peter's mother-in-law gets up and starts serving them. And so immediately he begins to speaking. And this is one of the most astounding miracles in the Gospels. Because anyone who has any experience with someone who's having speech difficulties, and you go through speech training, you know the process of retraining the muscles of the mouth to change the way sounds are made. And you know that's a long and arduous process to retrain the mouth to speak correctly. And here instantly, this man hasn't heard probably for decades, instantly his speech is plain and correct and right and precise. Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. Why did Jesus tell them that? Because the last time Jesus was here in the Decapolis, remember the, the, the fellow wanted to go with Jesus and Jesus required him to stay and tell everybody. Here Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Why? We're not told. 
I think the best explanation is simply crowd control. The crowds are a problem. They're enormous. They're becoming difficult for Jesus to travel. And I think just quite simply, it's just crowd control. So he charged them to tell no one, verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Isn't that ironic? That the God-man who commands the sea and the wind and the waves, and he speaks to the storm and says, be still, and instantly it's still. That same God-man, with one word, the demons flee. And yet he charges them again and again to not tell people, and he can't seem to keep them quiet. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic that the one who commands the storm seemingly can't keep the crowd quiet? One thing that says to us is, the incredible, long-suffering patience of the Lord to allow mankind to sin against Him. You ever think of that? You ever ponder just the patience of God as He just allows mankind to scandalize His name, to sin against Him? Just the patience of Jesus here. So he charges them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So a couple of things that I see from this, first of all, is this says to us something very important about the human heart, doesn't it? It says to us something very important, very dark and very unpleasant about the darkness of the human heart. First of all, it tells us that within the fallen human heart, there is something, there's something in our heart that for certain sins, when we learn that they displease God, it actually awakens a desire in us to do it. Isn't that an ugly thing to see about ourselves? Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. What shall I say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing upon an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul says that once that, that I really learned that the law prohibits coveting, it's like that awoke something in me that said, oh, coveting. Hmm. That's what I want to do. Now, this isn't true for every sin. But it is true that all of us have some sin within our heart. That something about God's prohibition actually awakens more desire for it. So something about this, as Jesus told them, don't tell anybody. The more he told them, the more they disobeyed and told. So that's a very ugly truth about the fallen human heart and reminds us of just how desperately we need Christ. Secondly, this shows us something about the true disciple. The true disciple needs something a whole lot more than just excitement. You need something far more than just amazement to be a disciple because they were amazed at Jesus' ability. They were amazed at Jesus' power. In fact, Mark uses a, a phrase here that really just goes over the top. He says, immeasurably astonished, exceedingly astonished. They were so astonished, it just went beyond words to describe how astonished they were, yet they weren't astonished enough to obey. So something more than just amazement is required in order to be a disciple. 
You need to be more than just amazed at God's power or his love or his compassion or his forgiveness. God needs to do a whole lot more than just amaze you for you to be a disciple. Because the mark of a disciple is not amazement. The mark of a disciple is obedience. As we read in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So now finally, verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So that phrase, he has done all things well, that's a very emphatic phrase. In fact, the the word that's emphasized is the word well. So, so well has he done all things. All things he's done incredibly well. The emphasis there is just on his excellency. He does all things well. And certainly a truer statement has never been said. God certainly does all things well. Harkens us back, of course, to Genesis 1 and the creation account as God sees what he has made and he declares, this is good, this is good, this is good. It is all good. He has made all things and he has done all things well. So they lift up this praise, this acclamation, these words of adoration. This man does all things well. This is the literal fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So let your good works so, so be done before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is the literal fulfillment of this as they see his good works of freeing this man from deafness and muteness. And they lift up this praise, these words of adoration. He does all things well. 